and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran, and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. It's hard to believe it's now almost 10 years since Padraig O'Toole and I started 10 by 9 in the black box in Belfast. In that time, we've heard hundreds of true stories covering every area of life. We loved it then, we love it now. All our 10 by 9s are taking place on Zoom, so you can join in wherever you are in the world. You can find information about all our upcoming events and all the things you need to know about us and some things you don't at our website, 10by9.com. Now, there are three stories in this podcast for you, told at our April event when the theme was scars. All our stories were filled with love and some with pain. Here's our first story, and it comes from Karen Hetherington. records were housed in a purpose-built stone chest with a hinged wooden lid which was set into the enclave to the side of the chimney breast of my grandparents sitting room. A room that was commandeered and used solely by my uncle Ivan, their youngest child and the only one still living at home. It blended in perfectly with the surroundings as if it were just a continuation of the wall, was around the size of a bench seat and doubled up as such as and when required. It is impossible at this stage for me to say how old I was when I began to ease open the lid and peek at the treasures that lay within, but I must have been very young as this is one of my earliest memories. Therein lay the entire works to date of Led Zeppelin, Yes, Black Sabbath, Corslips, ACDC and Mike Goldfield, to name but a very few, as well as one-offs by certain bands and three or four albums of others. I knew all of them, it had come to be an obsession. As a very young child, I marveled at the artwork, turning it this way and that, taking in the pictures features on, featured on the double-sleeved albums, fascinated by the more gimmicky ones, like Led Zeppelin III, with, with its turning wheel, which could be rotated to change which photographs you could see. Curious of the one that featured only symbols, which I thought was some obscure language or secret code, I was yet too young to decipher. I remember being particularly captivated with Black Sabbath's Heaven and Hell and the single of Ian Gillen's No Laughing in Heaven, which I thought looked quite sinister and I wondered if they sounded the same. I shelved those ones for a couple of years before I braved it to find out. My favourite albums of all were the ones featuring the jester and different scenarios, telling a story through their artwork, which was nothing short of phenomenal. They enchanted me. It was one of these that I played first. I was six years old and I assured myself that I had paid close enough attention to operate the top of the range JVC turntable and separate amp, which was set into another purpose-built recess on the other side of the chimney breast. I had heard it all before, of course, but that album, Misplaced Childhood, was and still is my favourite of the Marillion releases. After that, I played all of them very, very carefully. I handled the records and the covers as delicately as possible, and thereafter, when I was at home, I played my parents' records as well. They were also huge music fans and had a decently sized collection of similar genres, but by no means as impressive as my uncle's, which all things considered must have cost him an absolute fortune and taken up a great lot of his wages every week for years. I was with my uncle, who was my mum's younger brother, all the time, like a stick in plaster, and he took me everywhere with him. Ivan was a real character, a joker, a keen photographer. He was full of energy and always had to be doing something. He absolutely loved life. 
I recall him regularly having parties in the sitting room where I sat amongst his friends, listening to music, looking at the pictures on the cover of whatever album happened to be playing at the time. I must have been two or three years of age in this instance, but the notion must have taken hold of me, even in my very formative years. Maybe it was in the genes, or maybe I was just a product of my environment, but there began my own obsession with music, which endures to this day and always, spans various genres and is ever increasing and evolving. Despite his love of life and appearing to outwardly to be fit and healthy, tragically his life was cut short when he died suddenly of a massive heart attack at just 35, when I was 15. The shock and loss was indescribable. Not long after, his entire record collection passed into my hands. It could never in any way ease the pain of losing Ivan, but I was exceptionally grateful to have them in my possession. And it was unquestioned by everyone that I would love and care for the records just as much as he had. It was 1994, a few years into the advent of CDs, which didn't take up as much space, didn't need to be turned over, could be forwarded on and didn't skip. All in all, albums were out. And in that era, for me, something spectacular and magical was lost. Like everyone else, I bought into the CD phase for a while, but I missed the ceremony of playing a record, that crackling sound which preceded the music, knowing which order the songs were going to be played in without the addition of remastered bonus tracks and undoubtedly the intricacies of the artwork on the album covers. As the name suggests, CDs were just too compact for me. And so I reverted to the records time and again. When I separated from my ex-husband, I left the record collection in the house we had shared, where he promised he would store them safely, along with some other belongings, until I was more permanently settled. But when our divorce turned acrimonious and we eventually broke all contact, I feared the worst. As he had absolutely no interest in music, I reasoned that he had probably sold or scrapped them to make room for other things. Over the years, I tried many times to put the loss of the music from my mind, but it frequently haunted the periphery of my thoughts and left me bereft, just as the loss of Ivan always had. Just over two years ago, my ex made contact with me and we put our past differences behind us. The very first thing I asked him was if he still had my records. He assured me that he did and that they were safely stored in the attic of the house I once owned, which was still owned by him, but was let out. He promised that when the tenants quit the property, he would retrieve them for me. And this put my mind greatly at ease for a while. Unfortunately, for several different reasons beyond his control, this did not come to pass. The house where they nestled for years after my departure has now been sold on and the record collection has now been irretrievably lost to me. While I mourned its loss previously, the finality of knowing it was gone forever is an immeasurable hurt. Of course, I will always treasure my memories, and unlike people, most things can be replaced. And I know the records could be if I so wished, but I can't bring myself to do it. They would feel like forgeries to me. Just like the album, my own childhood feels somewhat misplaced, but as with everything in life, there are lessons to be learned. The most important for me being that the loss of some people and some things can never truly be recovered from. Especially as in my case, if you relate the loss of the thing to the loss of the person, the scars may scab over, but they never really heal. And of course, I've learned you should always take very good care of the things that you love. Thanks so much, Karen. What a sad but brilliant story of loss on so many fronts. Maybe the records are out there somewhere. Let's hope so.
And if, like Chauncey Gardner, you prefer watching, you can see Karen tell that story on our YouTube channel. Practically all the stories from our Zoom events are there in bite-sized chunks, going right back to April of last year. Now, as you know, 10 by 9 is always free, but we do have a Patreon page if you'd like to help cover our overheads and keep us going through this period. We're so thankful to everyone who's donated. And if you don't like Patreon, you can give via PayPal. Just look us up using our email address, which is story at 10 by 9com That is story at 10 by 9com Equally, you can just sit back and support us by turning up, by listening and enjoying. Okay, next up is a story from Austin, Texas. I have to warn you, it does refer to child molestation, but it does so very gently and is, as so often at 10 by 9 more about love. Here's Paul Normandon. It was just the two of us in the car. Uh, we were driving to her first oncology appointment. The one, first one I was to attend with her. Her diagnosis was recent. And I thought this might be the last opportunity to talk to her about a subject that occurred almost 50 years in the past. I should not have had a secret agenda. But some secrets stay buried so long, they're just too hard to bring back up. And she was having one of her rare good days. So I use my least confrontational voice, the voice I use when I want something simple, irrelevant, but I feel compelled to ask anyway. I said, Mom, whatever happened to that guy who sexually assaulted me? The pause that followed made me think she hadn't heard the question. I started to panic in that silence a panic that I had lived with for decades, living in fear of what I might say or worse, what she might say. And then I had to decide, do I ask again? If she heard it the first time and was ignoring me, if I asked again, this might turn out to be one of her not so good days. Then I heard her. You know, you took too long to tell your father and me about that. I felt shame and blamed my younger self in that moment. I felt so much anger. It was always there just below the surface, but I felt my blood burning. It was, it was streaming into my hands as I held onto the steering wheel. Then I did that thing. I, I tried to desperately back out of the conversation. I tried to remind myself that my mother was left alone for months at a time with three young children in Cape Canaveral, Florida, while my father was out to sea. She was a thousand miles and so many years from the Rhode Island of her youth and all the people she knew and trusted. Dad was working on the Apollo project for NASA. This was a huge job for a man who had never finished high school. Mom had never finished high school either, but she wanted to. She was working on it in spite of being in her late 20s. I remember my molester, his truck, his dogs. I remember his smell. I remember his voice. Sometimes I hear his voice in crowds. Sometimes I smell that smell, wet dogs and cigarettes. I remember the time he came by the house to ask my parents if he could take me camping. 
We were standing outside, and as he approached us, I, I slipped behind my mother like a shy two-year-old. I was nine. Mom had on a floral print sundress that day. It was yellow with red flowers, probably poinsettias. They've always been her favorite. It was months after that encounter in 1971 that they figured out what he had done to me. We were alone in the house when the pair of them confronted me. My father took me by the shoulders. They both looked down at me, and I, I closed my eyes to hide from them. Then I confessed. In hindsight, I'm sure they weren't mad at me. But anger just feels like anger when you're young, even when you're older. When Dad left NASA, we moved to Houston. Years had passed without a word about any of this, like, like it never happened. After we left Florida, Mom, now with her high school diploma in hand, got a job. This was a big deal. The diploma made her confident. The new social norms of women working gave her courage. The dangers of Florida were gone. She was emboldened. Norman Rockwell could have painted the picture. A summer Saturday morning, mom, dad, and their oldest child sitting around a sun-drenched breakfast table, reading the paper together. Back in 1975, news came in the form of papers delivered right to your door. Even mom was reading the paper that day. She was transfixed by an article on the front page. When she finished reading the article, she had tears in her eyes. She shoved the paper into dad's hands and moved around the table. And as she approached me, she wrapped her arms around me and wept. Dad read the page, then slid the paper around the table to me. He too got up and walked over, putting one hand on each of us. The headline read, Houston Police Apprehended Serial Killer. As I looked at the words, an old man who had raped and murdered many young boys, they were searching for his accomplices. I, I was afraid for a moment to even glance. But then I just stared at the picture. He was not the man I knew from Florida. But for a moment, we had all acknowledged this could have happened to me. I could have been one of those raped dead boys. There were no words spoken at the table that day, at least none that I remember. None of us understood the permanence of such scars on a child or his family. It took my mom having cancer and the threat of dying for me to even broach the subject again. But the pain and the stigma seemed too much for both of us, even almost 50 years later. My rage was checked by my secret and shame. My, my fists gripped the steering wheel until they hurt, and the pain in my fingers felt like a great release. We drove on in silence. Silence that was not consent. I wanted closure. But the years of training to check my anger kicked in. I had learned how to turn the flames down, to agree to the premise, to simply accept the blame. I really shouldn't complain. She looked over at me and she said, we told the sheriff. 
in my brain, I started just screaming that something was done. They, they had talked to someone. She continued. But that man was long gone by the time you told us. The quiet refilled the car. My brain finished the thought. If only I had said something sooner. As we drove on to her appointment, my secret returned to its place. Paul, thank you so much. What a great story on an awful topic. We really appreciate you telling it. And now here's our third story. Given that the theme was scars, it's not surprising that physical as well as emotional and mental scars featured. And just be warned, this story refers to self-harming. But it's a brilliant story from a first-timer. Say hello to Cathy Ayres, who told this from her home in Whitehead. Before I talk about scars, I want to talk about ink. I have a best friend with fabulous tattoos. She got cat inked by Kat Von D before that reality TV show. She's inspired by Egyptian goddesses and plants and cats. Amazing, colorful tattoos. People stop her and ask to take photos. My best friend also has a lot of baggage. Years ago, she told me one of the reasons she spent so much of her limited resources on ink was it stopped her from taking out a knife and slicing her limbs until she passed out. Honestly, I was happy she had a coping mechanism. I could worry a little less about those emergency trips to the hospital or the less than helpful husband. Tattooing wasn't my coping mechanism, but we all self-medicate. My self-medication was pretty much wine at that time. I was a bit too frightened by the idea of pain to get a tattoo. I wanted one, but it just didn't seem like a fun experience. I had talked about it for years. But according to the internet, you shouldn't get tattooed when drunk, and I didn't think I could be brave enough without a little bit of wine in me. But there's also a reality TV show about making those kind of decisions too. But before she got her first tattoo, and before I had children, the BFF and I would go to Vegas and pretend we were glamorous. On one of our trips, we made our first trip to a tattoo shop, way up the strip. Not the pretty, bright lights Vegas, but a really kind of dark and somewhat forbidding place. She had split up with the less than useful husband, and she wanted a new look. She decided to get her nose pierced. I was there to hold her hand. It was an experience. The guy who was doing the piercing had a metal ring underneath the skin of his hand. He was hardcore and wouldn't let me perform my hand-holding duties. We were not going to argue with him. She got her nose pierced. We drank cocktails, maxed out a credit card, and left Vegas a few days later. It was probably a year after that that she started getting tattoos and other parts of her body pierced. He obviously hadn't scared her as much as he had scared me. I am not going to tell you that I'm a stellar example of good decision making or that I don't have my own share of baggage. And this isn't the time or place to look at some of the things I've done during lockdown, mainly to my hair. But a few years ago, I had a situation I couldn't handle. And that is when I discovered the addictive nature of harming my own body. You don't need a sharp instrument, though a good pair of scissors can make some nice quick cuts. 
grow your nails out, show a bit of perseverance and put in a little effort and you can sit in work meetings slowly but surely gouging out your own flesh. And after that gouging, you can look down and see your, the pain you feel. Punish yourself for not figuring out a solution to your crisis. Be in control of at least one thing in your life. It hurts while you do it. Use fingernails and chances are the wounds will get infected. Then move on to another part of the body. I did this for months before I was overwhelmed with shame and went to the GP. Arms covered in various marks and various stages of healing and hurting reopened almost daily. I could see my despair all over my body. I'm still a little surprised at how few other people saw it though. The GP sent me to the community mental health nurse who upped the antidepressants and added anti-anxiety medication. I loved the anti-anxiety medication, made getting on a plane so much easier, but that is a digression. The support I got from the mental health team from a GP I expected to be more judgmental. It saved my life, but that is a different story. What you want to know is that over the course of a summer, I slowly stopped. Sometimes it was I would wait for the song I was listening to to end before I cut. That was the bargain I made with myself. And most of the time, the urge to cut didn't last until the end of the song. Eventually, I stopped causing new damage, and I finally stopped revisiting the old damage. I let everything heal, which left me with lots of white scars on my arms in various shapes, depending on the method that I'd used at the time. I was ready to start cognitive behavioral therapy on the NHS. I was ready to try and be better behaved. I was ready to tell the world I was better. And it was then that I was ready to get ink. One word written across my right wrist, hearth. The Welsh word for beautiful. A message to myself that I am beautiful, that my flesh is beautiful, and that it deserves more respect than being a canvas for whatever pain I was feeling. And I still tell myself this every day. I got my ta tattoo done locally in Carrickfergus, and it hurt. And it got wrapped in clean film, and I did all my aftercare. Six months later, the best friend came to the UK. We were tourists in London. She came over to Northern Ireland. We had afternoon tea in the merchant. And she went to the shop in Carrickfergus to get a memento, a tattoo of a ribbon with charms on it around her wrist, a little crown, a shamrock, a flag, and space for one more, the artist told her. So she included a gold heart with her initials and mine. I'm the only person whose name she will keep on her body forever. Today, I still miss the feeling of pain. I miss the being in control of something. I miss being my own punisher. Maybe that is why I'm planning on my next tattoo. This will be my third when lockdown ends. The second tattoo, which involved big, deep needles and happened about 15 months ago, and this next one that I hope to get are different from the first. These additional tattoos are my messages to the world. I scar my body artistically to tell people who care to look who I am. I can't even see the second tattoo. I just know it's there and that's enough. But my first tattoo, it was for me. I see it every time I look down at my arms and see the scars from the time when I chose pain and blood as a way to cope and a way to get through one more day. The one word covers some of the scars. It talks to me every day. It really needs a bit of re-inking now. And, it, and I still need this daily reminder. I may have picked up a knife since then, and I may have held it to my body when I've wondered why I thought I could make different decisions 
but I haven't pressed the blade in. I haven't used my nails. I haven't even left the slightest scratch. For now, the ink reminds me I don't need these new scars. I just might need a little bit more ink. Thanks so much, Kathy. That took a lot of courage. We look forward to more from you in the future. And that is pretty much it for this podcast. Don't forget, though, Podrick has a few projects on the go at the minute. The Cory Mila podcast is just coming to the end of its run. Poetry Unbound Season 3 has just begun its run. And Podrick has also been guest presenting the On Being podcast. Busy boy. They're all available at the usual podcasty places. If you'd like to tell a story at 10 by 9 go along to the guidelines page on our website, 10 by 9com and get in touch. We are always, and I cannot stress this enough, always looking for storytellers. If you enjoyed this podcast, could you go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your fix of 10 by 9 and give us a rating and maybe even a short review. It helps get us noticed. This podcast was written, produced, presented, mixed and published by Paul Doran, so it's all my fault. Thanks to you for listening, but thanks most of all to Karen Hetherington, Paul Normandin and Kathy Ayres. I'll be back with another podcast soon, but for now, bye-bye. <laughs>